Hey folks, thanks for coming out. Um, we are going to kick off in about, about 90 seconds, if I can shut up in about 90 seconds. Um, I just want to thank you all for coming out. There are, uh, there's an amazing um, lineup. Very, very lucky to be able to talk to some of the people we get to speak to on the Tortoise Shack on a daily basis at this stage. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm also privileged to work with some amazing people. Uh, and I'm delighted that two of them are going to be uh, leading, kicking us off tonight. Um, is our good friend, Glow West host, and the person who makes me redder than ever every Monday morning when I hit publish, uh, Caroline West. Caroline, thank you so much, and come on up here. Um, I'm sure Tony would be delighted that we're not going to talk too much about sex too much tonight. Well, maybe. We'll see. We're squeezing a little bit of sex tonight. Um, so, yeah, for those who don't know, I host Glow West, which talks about sex, sexuality in the body, um, all the good parts of sex, from how to orgasm, from reverse cowgirl, to healing from things like sexual trauma and things like that. So the good, the bad, and the ugly side of sex as well. I forgot my bag of lube to give away, but if anyone wants some lube, just send me a DM and I will send you lube um, and condoms, maybe some sex toys if you're lucky. I don't know. This is my life now. It's kind of weird. Um, so yeah, so today I'm really, really delighted to have my wonderful guest with me today, which is David Carroll. We did our MA in sexuality studies back in 2011, which is like really long ago. Um, David's worked in the area of sexuality for about 25 years now. He's worked for Belong To, for Our House, for the Gay Man's Health Service. So he is like king of the queer male world in Dublin. So no pressure, David. Um, and David is just almost a doctor. He's almost there. He's finishing up his PhD looking at queer pop music in the 80s. So everyone, big round of applause for David Carroll. <laughs> Come on in. Hiya, Caroline. How's it going? Um, I'm good. I'm good. Half thrilled, half excited. Well, one toward thrilled, one toward excited, and one toward shitting. You'd be fine. You'd be fine. We said there's no anal sex conversation, David. Yeah, yeah. Be careful. Be careful. Um, first off, I have to say I hate you because doing research for this, I realised the '80s is not 10 years ago, and it's not 20 years ago. It's 40 years ago. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. What? When did we get so old? <laughs> no, it's really yeah. Yeah. It's funny, um, I remember you mentioned Belong To already, and I remember in the last couple of years of working on Belong To, I left in 2016, exhausted from the marriage referendum, to be honest, and uh, there was a young woman who came to the young lesbian youth group one day, and she had a Blondie t-shirt on, and I was like, oh my god, I love Blondie, and she was like, who's Blondie? And I was like, your t-shirt, and she was like, I just bought this in Benny's, I just thought it was a cool woman, I was like... <laughs> That's like our marker of how old we are when the fashion comes around and it's in pennies and yeah. Gen Z are like, oh, I just like the colour. And we're like, no, it just yeah. stopped making us feel so Ramones old. Ramones t-shirt, anybody? Oh, yeah. God. Oh. Or the Nirvana t-shirt is actually coming back as a fashion statement, which I don't think Kirk Cobain would be totally on board with. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Courtney Loaf would probably be because she gets some money out of it. <laughs> yeah. But that's a different story. Anyway, before we go into politics, talk to us about queer pop music in the 80s. But it didn't start in the 80s because you have the king of, depends who you're talking to, it's either the king of pop or the king of rock and roll. Elvis Presley actually laid the groundwork for people like David Bowie and George Michael and 80s filthy, lovely pop songs. So how did Elvis get that ball rolling? 
Um, I suppose, really, well, again, through my right. research, I've been look, lucky enough to really spend time kind of, I, I kind of always had an interest in pop music, but in the last four years, really kind of go back and explore all of the intricacies. And I suppose what's really apparent to me is sexuality and sex has just always been a huge component of pop music, both in how, how it's sold, but also in the kind of discourse that exists. Mm. If you think of any of the controversies surrounding pop music in the last couple of years, they usually involve an element of sex too. But again, looking back right to the 50s, and I suppose with the 50s, I suppose it's to acknowledge it as the beginning of rock and roll and pop as we knew it. Mm -hmm. However, I suppose pop as a concept, when you think about it, it really what it just means is popular. Mm -hmm. But um, we think of pop really starting with the 50s, with, with the birth of rock and roll. And from the 50s onwards, really, there's just evidence of queerness always been there. I suppose nowadays it's less hidden and it's less covert mm -hmm. and certainly queer artists and queer materials have always been censored over the years or there's a very strong history of censorship of course but yeah right back from the 50s you have Little Richard you have Elvis Presley if you think of Elvis Presley Hound Dog even the lyrics to Hound Dog so it's set in a prison uh, or uh, um, sorry Jailhouse Rock it's set in a prison and one of the lyrical verses is number 43 set to number 47 you're the cutest jailbird I ever did see so there's like Elvis singing I mean about what else another... do you do in prison <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. and then hopefully you know again Little Richard another example you know, incredible black queer performer, but, you know, uh, Bebop Aloobop, constantly referenced as one of the most influential rock songs of all time. Mm -hmm. There was a verse in that that was specifically about anal sex. And we had to, we had to say it. <laughs> <laughs> we had to pop that. Sorry, Tony. And yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that verse was taken out by management, you know, again, because it was seen as just not sellable. Um, so there's okay. always been that history from the 50s right onwards of, of yeah. sex. Usually efforts to censor or control or sometimes self-censor it from artists, but queerness has always been inherent in pop music, I would argue. Okay. So that really changed in Irish society because we didn't have sex in Ireland ever. Um, and we especially didn't have sex until the TV came in. Late, late show. <laughs> yeah. The Bishop and the Nighty. Does anyone remember the Bishop and the Nighty story? That was, yeah, a woman went on um, The Late Late Show and she said she wore a nightie on her honeymoon and she got condemned by bishops from the pulpit for, like, filth and stuff like that. Um, but MTV kind of ramped that up a gear. So we went from RTE with Gay Byrne and Jesus and MTV with Bowie and everyone else and stuff. So talk to me about that of, like, what was that experience like, switching between, like, RTE 1 and 2, if we had 2 back then? to MTV like in the yeah, 80s yeah. on our little Irish sets with our poor sweet innocent Catholic minds which never talked about sex at all. Yeah well I, I think you're absolutely right I think the 80s really changed the music industry and more than anything else it was the advent of MTV because even away from queerness and sexuality it put a focus on the visual that we just had never had in in pop or rock before. Hmm. There was uh, suddenly this emphasis on how people looked. Um, but in terms of the 1980s and queer stuff, I think in particular that was really taken advantage of. So again, mo you know, some of those big queer 1980s pop stars we think about, like Culture Club, it wasn't the music that was shocking, it was the aesthetics that was shocking. And again, that vehicle of MTV introduced that. I think in Ireland, our own version of it was MT MTV USA with Vincent Hanley on Sunday afternoons. And certainly for me... And 
probably if people are old enough in the audience, I just have this memory of growing up and the weekend being incredibly grey. And then for two hours on Sunday afternoon, you'd have this like explosion of colour and mayhem and anarchy in the sh- in the form of rock music and pop music. You know, it just, I suppose it spoke to me, I think. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I consider myself, although I'm a product of 1980s Ireland, which was a fairly grey, ungay place at the time, for me, my memories of, of searching for some kind of role models or some kind of positive affirmation about my sexuality. The only place I found them was in pop music, pop videos, actually. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense if you've got Culture Club and Frankie goes to Hollywood and everyone. But then, obviously, not everyone was on board with this filt that we had on MTV. Yeah, yeah. So we had the Filthy 15. So yeah. talk to us about what that was. Well, again, I suppose... If you look right back at the history of pop and rock, um, there's always been efforts to censor it, uh, to regulate it, and incredibly re- relevant to usually the, regula- the, the, the regulation of sexuality. So the Filthy 15 was a really interesting phenomenon of the 83, 84. And what happened supposedly was um, uh, a friend of Tipper Gore, wife of Al Gore, um, her daughter... She brought her daughter to, to, to Walmart and told her to pick a record. And she unfortunately picked Darling Nikki by Prince with its reference to masturbation in a hotel lobby and was Wait, really, really he's shocked. He's masturbating in the hotel lobby? No, he's talking about a woman who he sees masturbating in a hotel lobby, I think. Okay, is this some like Louis C.K. stuff? Like, that's kinda, hmm, okay, all right, okay. So not so, an appropriate record for yeah. a child. So she was absolutely shocked at this, and she went to Tipper Gore, and as a result, they set up what was called the Parents Music Resource Centre. And actually... This was a precedent for something that still exists today, which is, you know, the parental lyrics advisory t-shirts, you say, which actually are a badge of cool. Like what ended up happening with that whole effort to censor things was it became a badge of honor. Like rock stars wanted that on their album. But anyway, um, so she compiled a list with Tipper Gore of songs, which they presented to the American Senate in 1984 called the Filthy 15. And it's a really interesting list because, again, I suppose it just, I suppose, backs up what I was saying about that focus on sexuality. Of the 15 songs on the Filthy 15 list, they were categorized. So it was uh, violence, sex, um, the occult, because people were quite worried about the occult, obviously, also in the 1980s yeah. and, and rock and pop. But of the 15 songs that were banned, nine were banned under the auspices of sexually offensive content. Okay. And some of them, you know, I suppose Cindy Lauper's Shebop, its lyrics aren't explicit, but it's about female masturbation, a, a joy to, the, a, to, to female masturbation. Um, so you can perhaps see why, you know, People found offence, but then other songs like Madonna "Dress You Up" was on the fifteen on the Filthy Fifteen. Of all the Madonna songs, well, it's one of her worst songs anyway. Okay. But, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, like it gets explicit. It gets as explicit as "I'm going to dress you up with my love all over your body," and this was considered absolutely, you know, horrendous. So, like, I'm imagining like this, like very conservative woman. She probably has pearls and cardigans and is she like reading out these song lyrics to like a government body and saying look the dressing up part that's about female ejaculation and stuff or is it just like 
Basically, Read up for yourself. It's too dirty to even say. No, basically, there's lots of there's some really fun YouTube clips where you can see them in front of the Senate reading out Prince's lyrics about masturbation in a hotel lobby. And oh yeah, my God. Yeah. I hope Prince had that on like repeat in his house, like <laughs> over and over again and stuff. So that will like Prince like would have been one of the most iconic. Like he was filthy. He he like all his songs should have been the top fifteen of the filthy fifteen. Yeah, yeah. But like all his songs were like about masturbation. I think he did. He have one MTV appearance where he basically simulated an orgy. Yeah, yeah. and he had asked his chaps on and it was just like yeah. I, this, just this tiny little man who was just like pure sex and yeah, it just was brilliant yeah. he, was, he was amazing but I think one of like Prince gets uh, uh, lots of obvious and, and deserved accreditation but one of the things I think people forget about often is just how kind of ambiguous his look was, how gender fluid his look was. You know what I mean? One of his earliest albums, he appears on the front in a thong, basically. Uh, no, you know, stranger to makeup and frilly shorts. You know what I mean? He really was part of, I think, how we saw in the 1980s, the gender bender movement moving beyond queer identified artists and really just having an effect overall in pop and rock at the mm -hmm. time of itself. If you think even of the heavy metal bands of the 1980s, you know, some of them look like drag queens. Like you look yeah. at Twisted Sister or ACDC and it's big perms, lots of makeup, you know what I mean? Man drag. Very drag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very, very poor drag. Yeah. Not like <laughs> yeah, stylish yeah. RuPaul drag yeah, kind yeah, exactly. of thing. So yeah, but even like those songs would have been like so explicit. I mean, what's that? Is it Def Leppard and pour some sugar on me? And like I was singing that as a kid and I was like, this is a great song and not realizing like what that was about. But like they were so like explicitly sexual and that was the era of like groupies and like pure sex and sex and drugs and rock and roll and unfortunately some underage um activities as well so but like how did that all kind of combine in that cultural moment of like where you have these people doing this like wild lives but you have people like tipper gore going you need to be banned you're filthy you're banned how does that work? Oh, I'm not sure. I, th I think it's a combination of things, Caroline. I think, again, the 1980s was really interesting because I suppose, well, certainly from a queer sexuality perspective, there was so much to fight against. And if you look at pop music, I think it's well established that it's often at its most potent when it has something to kick back against. So if you think of even punk rock as an example, kind of been born as a reaction to the austerity of 1970s Britain. Um, I think that the queerness and the outrageousness and the, the, the sheer sexual exuberance of much of pop in the 1980s was a reaction to how conservative things were. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I, I can't help but think it was partly a kickback and particularly as, as many of you will know from a queer perspective, the 80s was just such a shit decade, you know? Yeah. You had HIV where everyone was just, Dropping like flies and all those horrendous ads of tombstones and, and stuff like that. Well, you so. know, for the, you know, for the gay community, it was just, you know, it really, really was. Uh, there's a famous queer activist called Larry Kramer who set up one of the, the direct action groups, infamous direct action groups called ACT UP. And he has a great quote saying that the 1980s could be defined by a decade in which just staying alive was a political act. And I think there's really something to that. You know, mm. we had instances where you had Reagan in the States with his family values. He was talking about, he, he, he didn't mention HIV or AIDS in a speech until I think it's estimated about 50,000 people had been affected about five years into his presidency. No mention 
mention of it. In the UK, you had uh, Clause 28. So Margaret Thatcher famously uh, introduced uh, the, the uh, legislation to ban the promotion of mention of homosexuality in education settings. So within that environment, Ireland, as well as the continued criminalization of homosexuality, you had the decade being bookended by, I suppose, at the start of the decade, the, the, you know, the murder of three gay men, two here in Dublin, one in Cork, and the end of the decade, uh, arson attacks on community venues, uh, the Hirschfield Centre in Temple Bar, Sides Nightclub in Dame Street. So it was a, it was a difficult time. Uh, so I can't help but think that that really, really influenced and, and impacted how, how yeah. pop was at the time. Like all that is, incredibly depressing of course for obvious reasons but then yeah the pop music like if you look at Frankie Goes to Hollywood it was pure excess like they're singing about orgies and just like just have sex whatever fuck it it's fine and like that excess like how does that balance off against like you people like George Michael who are still playing the straight card and that everyone's like oh he's my first crush and it's like he wasn't liking you back like definitely was not liking (laughs) you back there and nobody realized George Michael was gay um how did like so he had to stay in the closet for the longest time Mm -hmm. at that point like so how does that impact like so you had obviously out people like Frankie goes to Hollywood but then you had George Michael as well so like what's that balance in the pop culture world at that stage? Well, I suppose partly I can't help but think of, at the end of the day, it's a business too. And I think what's really interesting about Frankie Goes to Hollywood, where if you look at uh, Paul Morley, their kind of uh, Svengali, I think what he really cleverly did was he realised that there was something financially viable about the power to shock too. Um, so if you look again at uh, the 1970s and the likes of the village people who brought very gay imagery and oh my god I forgot about the village people (laughs) yeah yeah oh my god but you know they brought they brought gay imagery and gay lyrics into pop but what they were was an example of I suppose how pop could be received by two different audiences and I think Paul Morley and Frankie Goes to Hollywood were really clever at, at imbuing this in their work what they did was the village people spoke to a gay audience with how they looked and some of the lyrics. Um, but we know from all of those videos of President Trump dancing to YMCA that a lot of people just didn't get that other meaning. Which gives me joy every time <laughs> seeing him do that video. Yeah, it's great. Oh. Um, but yeah. then I think with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, it was part, it, without being cynical, but it was partly morally realizing that he really had the power to shock. Mm. And also one of the things that's interesting about pop music, not so much today, but certainly up until the 1990s, if you banned the record, it was more or less going to do well yeah. by virtue of publicity. And we had yeah. that with Frankie Goes to Hollywood, with Relax in the 80s, and then also by 88 or 89, George Michael, when he was still heterosexual, with I Want Your Sex. Um, that, yeah. Again, banned <coughs> straight to banned. number one. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's that, that was probably him like pushing the boundaries of like how far he could kind of go. But then if we, if we slightly detour into the 90s, George Michael really came out. Yeah. Like yeah. really came out. So um, let's tell the story that in case anyone doesn't know, but it does involve a public toilet. Yeah. Um, some of the best times for some people <laughs> happen in public toilets. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, so yeah. Well, George, well, I suppose it's interesting again because some academics would argue that there was lots of uh, uh, clues in George's work, even in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly, again, aesthetically, if you look at the Fate video or the I Want Your Sex video, he's dressed in that quite clonish, kind of almost leather man, leather man look. Yeah. It's denim and leather jacket and the guitar, and it's very, you know... Is that the supermodel video? No, that's uh, Freedom, the supermodel. Oh, yeah, okay. This is two or three years before. but yeah. So there was some kind of aesthetic evidence that, that, that he was maybe queer. But of course, then in 1998, he was quite infamously uh, uh, arrested for uh, imp uh, for uh, proportuning his sex with an undercover LA police officer in, mm -hmm. in public toilets. And I suppose at the time, traditionally, uh, and particularly for, for celebrities from the United Kingdom who were subject to awful tabloid scrutiny in the 1980s yeah. and 90s with the, the red tops, the sun and the likes. Um, there was a real feeling of when people came out, it was almost like the, the, the stereotype of the, the, the politician when they're having an affair, they would, you know, oh, I profusely apologize to my wife and it would be all very apologetic. But George Michael just didn't apologize. He kind of said, I meet strangers and have sex with them in toilets. I'm not hurting anybody. Um, Which I love because that didn't leave the tabloids anywhere to go because the tabloids are like all about shame. Yeah. And George was like, fuck your shame. Oh, absolutely. Like, and actually, you know, I hate the sun. <laughs> um, but they do have a good line in headlines. And I always remember the day after George Michael's arrest in the public toilet, the, the headline of the sun was, zip me up before you go-go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair play <laughs> yeah. to that one. Like, that's, uh, that's kind of awesome. But after the, after the <laughs> event, then, like, George Michael, he went on a, a whole circuit of chat shows, Parkinson, you know, things like this. Mm. And again, refused to apologize for the act. But then almost, also really interestingly, continued to really publicly do this. Except now he would be followed by like 10 or 15 tabloid reporters to the park. <laughs> and there's a really famous instance uh, of where the report, tabloid reporters were taking pictures of him going into this loo in, in California one afternoon. And he came over to the tabloid photographer and he said, can I ask you a question? He said, are you straight or gay? And the photographer said, I'm straight. And George Michael supposedly said, well, fuck off. This is my culture. <laughs> and so yes. unrepentant to the end. Yeah. Yeah. So the man could never pee in peace afterwards. No, no, people no, were no. like we need to but what I love is that that video for outside like that would have been one of my first videos when I, that was like so overtly sexual and so unapologetic for it because a lot of videos before that might have been kind of very you know like slyly hinting at things he had like disco ball toilets yeah, in the yeah, video yeah, which brilliant. I love and cops having sex and yeah, like yeah. Just, I thought, I just thought that was so incredible. Like that must have been such a liberating moment for him, but also for like the gay community, and also just for anyone with a sex life as well. Absolutely, you know, I think yeah. it was really one of those things where where it. it the intention of the outing completely misfired and what the press did was completely misjudged the public mood, which actually mm -hmm. the public liked George Michael. You know what I mean? Yeah. Regardless of what Tyler he was in. But, yeah. <laughs> but like, I, you know, it's such, again, we're straying into 90s territory, but that happened, when did he get caught? I was like to Caroline, I was like, don't ask me about the 90s or anything after <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> so, like, really does touch on it, just briefly. But, like, so that was, when did he get caught in the toilet? 98. Yeah. 98. But before that, 
No, was it before that we had Stephen Gately being threatened to be outed by, again, the sun or the news of the world? Well, again, Stephen Gately, I think, was 99. But again, an interesting one because, you know, Stephen came out, you know, I'm gay and I'm proud. Mm -hmm. But you dig a little deeper and a couple of months later, he was admitting that basically he came out to the sun because they contacted him. The sun are one of the tabloids because they basically said, if you don't give us a coming out story, we're going to out you. So it wasn't necessarily his choice, you know. Yeah, and thankfully now it's not a big a deal. Like we have openly gay pop acts and stuff. It's it's not the big deal. But even like that sense of ambiguity was fodder in the 80s like you said like the gender bender movement absolutely like lots of frills like makeup like girl clothes on boys and all this kind of thing and people experimenting with that like i think when david bowie was around people didn't quite know what to make of him for a while yeah i think you know quite honestly i don't think i'd be sitting here talking about queer pop music if it wasn't for bowie but he's kind of complex because i'm you know so 1972 Three months after marrying Angie, he declares to Melody Maker, I'm gay and I always have been. Um, And then he kind of said, I'm bisexual. And then later in his career, he completely retracted all of that. And actually in the early 80s was quoted as saying it was the worst thing he'd ever said. Well, Um, I'd imagine for his wife, yeah. (laughs) like Jesus. But he was, I suppose, aesthetically, there's no denying. Mm -hmm. It was kind of revolutionary. Uh, uh, His appearance on Top of the Pops, He put his arm around the guitarist, and it's so basic when you think of it now, but we just did not see displays of affection between men, first of all, Mm. and secondly, we just did not see men with makeup. That was huge, and I think what he really did was, although his identity was retractable and and, and he changed, he really led the path for... for And so many of those big artists you talk about from the 80s, Boy George... um, Frankie goes to Hollywood, queer artists will all talk about Bowie being the influence from their childhood, you know. Which is mad how that that one person can have that impact. And I think that's why Bowie gets a pass sometimes when we talk about his experiences. Like, I mean, Laurie, I forget her surname, was 13 when Bowie had sex with her. And it's like, he seems to get a bit of a pass from a lot of people because he was so influential in supporting so many people. There's a lot of queer communities who won't hear a bad word against Bowie. And they're going, it's sex with 13-year-olds. Like, that's... Yeah, yeah. And, like, I, and I think also it was very gendered because really what Bowie did, you know, I suppose that incarnation of Bowie that we know with the makeup and does it was kind of part of that glam rock era, which was actually really, really quite, you know, there was very few women involved in it. There were very few representations yeah. of women, you know what I mean? So it was still quite rigid. And I think the queerness, I'll, I'll, people read queerness into that and that was great. But I think in terms of a kind of an ownership of music, the first example you really had of queer music entering the mainstream was actually disco. Because we know disco came from, you know, it, it originated in black Latino queer clubs in America. And that was the first art form of pop that afforded a space to women, to people of color, to queers. And I think... You know, we think of disco in quite naff terms, but actually it really was revolutionary. You know, even things like the desegregation of audiences in the States, disco played a huge part in that, I think. Well, that's like if anyone's seen the series Pose, like you have to watch it if you haven't. But that was all about how music provided that space for 
queer people of colour, which didn't exist in all those like Absolutely. standard white spaces. And the voguing that went on, which is like what Madonna heavily borrowed from to make her career happen. But if you go back to what you said there, yeah, we've all we've talked about today is, is men so far. Where are the girls? Where are the femmes? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's more complex because I suppose it's an intersectional issue because I think what happens around queer female sexuality in pop is the intersectional nature of it reveals the additional barriers. So I think if you're a queer woman, you have to put up with being a woman, first of all, in pop. So we know, first of all, loads of research out there showing, you know, representation of women was very stilted, really, up until, you know, if you think of even the 60s, you had the the girl bands, which were quite uniformed in their presentation, very feminine. Um, But it really took until the 1970s that you had kind of the advent of the female singer-songwriter. And a lot of rock academics would kind of propose that. Because when I began to look at, for example, particularly the 1960s, which we think of as a very revolutionary time in terms of civil rights, second wave feminism, civil rights in America, the birth of gay rights in terms of Stonewall. But it was a really poor decade for representation of queers, actually. Um, And what some academics argue is that the actual effect of social change takes about five or ten years to kind of manifest in popular culture. And I think it's kind of true if you look at the 70s. It it was taking all of those newly forming liberal ideas from the 60s, but we really only saw them being executed in the 1970s. So, Am I answering your question? Like, ah, <laughs> slight tangent. This is what happens on podcasts. That's fine. But like, I'm actually racking my brains to think of like female queer pop icons from that time, and I just keep sticking oh, yeah. on Madonna, which isn't obviously that's not the case. But she would have borrowed quite heavily from that. I mean, she borrowed from everything to make her career kind of happen. But like, I can't think of a whole lot that are sticking out for me. No, and, and, and again, it, it points to the complexity. Yeah. I, I think. So certainly, you know, although there were a number of closeted artists in the 80s like George Michael, we did have the out gay men. So we had mm-hmm. Jimmy Somerville, we had Boy George, we had Pete Burns, we had, you know, a new episode in gay identity, certainly in pop culture. Mm-hmm. For women, it's interesting. There wasn't one single out female artist yeah. in the 1980s. Um, but again, if you look at, I suppose, the traditional heteronormativity of the music industry, uh, particularly in those days, how male-led it was, I suppose women had to find other avenues. And in particular, I suppose the whole advent in the 1970s of the women, spelled W-O-M-Y-M, the women's music movement in, in the States, was huge. And again, by the 1980s, what happened was we had lots of artists who had started out on that kind of alternative women's circuit. But then I think what happened in the late 80s was you saw this phenomenon of loads of those artists crossing over into the mainstream the likes of Tracy Chapman, John Armour Trading, people like this, they never necessarily identified as queer. But if you look at the research, the really important thing was for lesbian women and for queer audiences, they picked up on the queerness. And I think that's the essential thing. Yeah, yeah like yeah. you can't, it's like Lady Gaga sometimes. She's like, I'm a gay icon. And it's like, you don't get to decide that. Like the gays <laughs> decide that. Yeah. So yeah, that, so going forward then and, you know, we have all those 80s, like Elvis laid the, the groundwork and Little Richard laid the groundwork for the 80s. Where are we now? Like, because it, it's, there's so much awesome queer music out there and, you know, we have trans performers and it's, it's like people are not necessarily being outed as much. Um, you know, we have like Demi Lovato just came out as they and non-binary and like no one made it a big deal. We were just like, you're still just annoying anyway, regardless <laughs> of your gender. Like, 
you know, you're not annoying because you're non-binary, you're annoying just because you're you. Um, and, and you, like, fight with, like, cupcake places and stuff. But, like, so... Like, where do you see now, like, that, that kind of, are we a bit more inclusive? Are we a bit more progressive? Are the lyrics filthier? Do we have, like, a filthy 100 now instead of a filthy 15? I, I, you know, I'm no expert on pop music of today, I have to say. And I think I'm of the age where it's appropriate for me to say, it's rubbish, it all sounds the same. <laughs> but I think that's my job as a 49-year-old. I'm kind of relieved that I think pop music is crap nowadays. Um, <laughs> But in terms of the representation, like, I mean, it's just so different. I, I suppose for me particularly, what I notice is the kind of queer thing of non-binary and gender fluid artists like breaking through in this phenomenal way in the last couple of years. But also, again, the 90s and the things we've been talking about, like George Michael and Stephen Gately, they changed things phenomenally. You know what I mean? You know, I, I remember reading in an article in the early 2000s, and it was kind of true that, you know, it was practically mandatory by the early 2000s to have a gay member in the boy band. Yeah. You know, it just changed, you yeah. know what I mean? And I think that was a reflection of society changing, but I really think that was led by pop culture representation, pop music. And then even things like, you know, things we often don't value, but representation in soap operas, things like this. If you look at the late 90s and the noughties, there was a real revolution in terms of representation. And I think that usually changed things and led the way to the years and years and the little Nas X's of today. Yeah, the way we could do a whole podcast on little Nas X, but it's not your not your world. Um, but so I suppose to wrap up, do you have like the your most favourite queer moment that everyone has to go off and have a look at? Or oh a queer, most favourite queer pop song? Oh my God, a queer no moment. <laughs> um, I can't think of a queer moment, but I certainly can tell you my favourite queer moment, which was when I grew up, as I say, my childhood idol was Pete Burns from Dead or Alive. Remember you spin me round? Yeah. And I remember once a couple of years ago, I got a text message from a friend saying, you know he's going to be on the Ryan Turbidy show tonight. <laughs> and I just thought, Fuck it. And I texted every single person in my contact list. And, I, and it turned out a friend of mine worked with Ryan Turbidy's brother. So got tickets to the Ryan Turbidy this show. very Irish. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. On the way out to RTE, stopped in an off-license, even more Irish, um, bought a bottle of champagne because I was fully confident I was going to meet Pete Burns. With a bottle of champagne? Yeah. Are you going to give it to him? I, I was adamant. I just knew. <laughs> So we got to the, to the Late Late Show and afterwards, after the interview, you know when they give away things for free in the audience and afterwards you queue up at the front of the stage for those bags with the freebies. And my hubby Gary went off to the loo and I just thought, this is my opportunity. And I just like ran behind the curtain <laughs> with my bottle of champagne and found myself on the, on the guest corridor with the stars and, and knocked and the first door was opened by Pete Burns. And oh. I just went, I'm not alone to take, I swear to God. And I handed him the bottle of champagne and I went, he'd, he'd, he'd actually revealed on the show as well, he'd just gotten married secretly. So it was a great opportunity to go to, congratulations. Okay, slightly so appropriate. Yeah. I was kind of ready. I was kind of ready then to just like fade into the background. And he said, no, stay around, join me. I'm, come down to the green room with me. And I just had, you know, they say never meet your, your idols. I just had the best night ever. I just have this memory of standing in a circle, right? It was the most surreal thing ever. And on this side of me was Marion Keys. And on this side of me was Sonia Sullivan. And there's Pete Burns. And Pete Burns is going to me, who are they? <laughs> <laughs> and I gave him this induction into Irish celebrity. Wow. Yeah, it's great. 
Best night ever. Yeah, Wait, yeah. hang on. Did you go... The important question here. Did you go back and get your husband from the audience? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You okay, 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 okay. You didn't just leave him there, <laughs> no, like... No, 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 no. Where's no, he gone? No. Like, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair. That does sound awesome. Did Ryan Turbidy hunt you down, though? Ryan Turbidy came into the green room at one stage. I'd say terrified that I was crazy stalker. Yeah. Because he came in and he was like, everything okay, Pete? <laughs> and and, and like, Pete was like, yeah, we're friends. I was like, <laughs> oh, fair play yeah, to yeah. you. Well, yeah, that sounds like oh, the best way to that meet your brilliant. idols. So brilliant. Um, we'll wrap up there. But I think uh, speaking of Stephen Gately, can we all just have a little toast to Stephen Gately? Because he was just the sweetest little <laughs> yeah. person ever. So here's to Stephen. Stephen. Cool. Cheers. <laughs> fair play to him um and yeah Stephen Gately's mom let, let me into his house when I was about 13 really that's my not not yeah kind of is my queer moment actually really we stalked her I had these pen pals from the north and I was like 13 and met them they came down and I was like I'll meet you you stranger because we like boy zone like, <laughs> like, they came down I was allowed to just go meet these people um <laughs> they knew all the addresses of every Irish pop star. Do you remember OTT? We sat outside <laughs> Niall O'Neill's house and he was like, would you just fuck off, you weirdos? <laughs> like, and we knocked on Stephen Gately's mouse door and she was like, he's not in, he's in London, come on in. And she showed us and he's like, there's Stephen with um, Mick Hutchins. There's a smash hits word. And Brilliant. his poor brother was there and we were like, we don't want to talk to you. Like, we're Brilliant. all about Stephen. And the poor guy was just hanging around going... I'm like I'm nice too like the poor guy but his mom was lovely and gave us cups of tea and was all like and he's off and he met he met that uh, what's your what's your man's name oh yeah uh, Michael Jackson and I was like <laughs> how did you forget that name like, and she was just the sweetest woman ever so Excellent. fair play to this has turned into a Stephen Gately tribute and actually no. a, a really quick postscript then I, my husband is going to kill me telling this story but at one stage Pete in, during the course of the evening he was oh, talking you about and Pete, like, oh like yeah, this yeah. Now. <laughs> but he, he'd had a well, he was talking about it on the Late Late Show, he'd had a well-documented nervous breakdown. So at one stage, he was talking to my husband, Gary, about his mental health. And Gary said this phrase, he said, Pete, you talk about it being a, a mental breakdown. I would call it a mental breakthrough. And I was like, wow, that's really profound. But about two weeks later, sitting at home, still basking in the glory of my celebrity <laughs> encounter, and Pete Burns is on the Graham Norton show, and Graham Norton says, so tell us about your mental breakdown. And he says, well, I'd like to describe it as a mental breakthrough. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I oh died. Gary's over here. Where is he? Round of applause for Gary there. Influence <laughs> That is brilliant. Oh my God. You should have got some royalties or something out of that. Like, that would have been good. But anyway, listen, this has been absolutely fascinating, David. Where can people find you, Mr. Almost Doctor? Not that long to go. Well, they can find me if they get the 40 out of Fingless because I'm really bad. <laughs> I, I, I'm on Instagram, David Carroll 3A4. I know, you're terrible. But I hardly post and I don't do. Caroline's always giving out about. Yeah. Actually, yeah. So you can People find me in Fingless or David Carroll 3A4. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And yeah, you don't do Twitter at all. No. <laughs> okay. So just go stalk David around Fingless somewhere. Yeah. So you can find him there or if you need to drop me a line. I'll give you my phone number. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not a good thing. Um, brilliant. So listen, thanks, Mel, everyone, for coming along. And we managed not to get too embarrassing. So that was kind of yep. progress for this podcast. So happy days. Thank you.
Thank you. Incredible podcast. Really amazing work, you know. Stop. We did and we worked together. It's awesomeness. Can't do it without my guests. So that's always good. And my listeners as well. So yeah, if anyone wants some lube, drop me a line. We'll give you a lube. And uh, yeah, let's all go to the bar. We'll take a quick break. And then Tony is up with his top on. So yay for a change. So thanks everyone and have a good night.